Okay, my name is Andrea Summer. I'm a pediatrician at the Medical University of South Carolina, but I also do uh, travel medicine. I see both children and adults in travel clinic, and I have an international adoption clinic as well where I see a lot of families um, before they go over uh, actually to adopt and travel clinic and, uh, and also help with uh, uh, assessing the child uh, after adoption. So today we're going to talk about staying healthy as a short-termer. So how many of you have already participated in short-term missions? Oh, excellent. More than half the room. Um, so it's very important before you, you uh, venture out to make sure that you have uh, visited a, a travel clinic or a physician who is knowledgeable in travel medicine to make sure that you receive the anticipatory guidance and the vaccines and malaria prophylaxis you may need if indicated. So we're going to go through some of the, um, the safety uh, issues related to international travel, um, traveler's diarrhea, uh, both routine and um, travel-specific vaccinations, and then uh, we'll end with malaria prophylaxis. So a few statistics. Um, for every 100,000 travelers that go to developing countries, about half are going to have some sort of uh, illness or injury. Um, and most often this is traveler's diarrhea. So a lot of you have already traveled. You may have experienced that yourself. But about one out of every 100,000 travelers um, dies. And the, um, this, this paper that was written by Dr. Stefan and others um, talks about the duration of the trip, um, you know, certainly increasing your risk for, for some of these morbidities and, morta and the mortality. So what do travelers die from? Well, um, it, it's not uh, exotic infectious diseases. That's a very small percentage. Um, if, if most travelers, um, if, if they do die, it is due to um, a motor vehicle accident most often. And, you know, just like when you're traveling here, it's the same, same sort of issues, although the risk is a little higher there, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, drownings are also um, a significant cause of mortality um, when, in travelers. And for um, older adults, uh, cardiovascular disease um, is significant as well. So deaths in uh, young adults uh, abroad are two to three times higher in developing countries. These are deaths due to injuries um, than they are in industrialized countries. Um, motor vehicle accidents, again, are the most common cause of fatalities. Now, motorbikes, how many of you have ridden a motorbike when you're in a developing country? Okay, did you wear a helmet? Yeah, good. Well, helmets often aren't readily available, so, um, you, you know, you may, you may need to, to plan a, accordingly um, and go with your own if you know that you're going to be riding a motorbike. But that, that is certainly a, a significant cause of injury and, and mortality. Um, and there again, drownings are responsible for up to 16% of deaths in travelers. And then, fortunately, animals are a relatively uncommon, uncommon cause of death. So a bit more on safety. Um, we tell travelers to avoid night driving, 
And that's for a number of reasons. Uh, one, um, you have to worry about bandits at night and having your car hijacked and that sort of thing, or carjacked. Um, and also, the roads are um, they're in pretty shabby shape, so it's, it's dangerous for that reason as well, because you're more, more likely to have accidents. Uh, seat belts. Uh, when I first started traveling overseas, it, it seems like seat belts weren't often available in cars, particularly in the, in the back seat. Um, but I was just in Tanzania in September, and it seems like you know, seat, belts, seat belts are more common in vehicles, and certainly if they're there, I would encourage you to wear them. Uh, we talked about helmets, and then um, if you're going to be doing any sort of water activity, approved flotation devices are strongly recommended. Now, I, t- I tell folks that if something's considered dangerous in the U.S., it's probably ten times as dangerous in a developing country. But this is me in Costa Rica on a zip line. But, you, you know, you do have to, uh, you know, make sure you're going with a, a reputable country when, uh, company when you do these sorts of things in developing areas. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about traveler's diarrhea. It's extremely common. A number of you may have already experienced this yourself. Um, and even for short-term trips, you, you know, it's extremely common because it usually occurs within the first two weeks of travel. Um, I have the definition that's pretty standard uh, for traveler's diarrhea listed there. Um, and those who are on um, medications like the uh, H2 blockers like Zantac or um, Pepsid or the, the proton pump inhibitors to suppress your gastric acidity, you're more at risk of traveler's diarrhea. And a lot of folks I see in travel clinic are on one of those medications. So um, if you have some sort of, you know, uh, more severe reflux or esophagitis, those sorts of things where it's not so safe to come off of it, that's okay. But it, if, you, you know, if you're just taking it because you have a little discomfort every now and then, you may want to come off that medication um, because your, your stomach acid is your first line of defense against harmful bacteria. So if you don't have that, you do increase your risk of traveler's diarrhea. Now, most folks, if they get traveler's diarrhea and they don't treat it, um, then there, it, the usual duration is at least about four days. So what causes the tra- traveler's diarrhea? Well, the most common cause is enterotoxigenic E. coli, and that's certainly true in uh, all of most of Latin America um, and, in, and in Africa. There are some invasive um, pathogens that sometimes uh, occur, and that's Salmonella shigella being more common. And in that situation, you oftentimes will get bloody or mucousy stools. Uh, parasitic causes of diarrhea in travelers are less common, but if you um, develop persistent diarrhea, uh, you know that may last for a couple of weeks or more, uh, and you may want to consider this. So how can we prevent traveler's diarrhea? So food and water precautions. uh, We spend a lot of time in our travel clinic going over uh, this with our patients. And you may have heard the phrase, boil it, cook it, peel it, or forget it. And, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in that. So what's generally safe? Um, So cooked vegetables are okay. You don't want to eat any raw vegetables, no salads. Um, you want your food to be steaming hot when it's served to you. It's more likely to be um, safe. When, when I was a, a medical student, I participated in some studies uh, with a, a physician who is very well known for his work in traveler's diarrhea down in um, Mexico, in Guadalajara. 
and uh, he he did some studies where he would actually measure the temperature of his food before he would eat it. If it wasn't hot enough, he would send it back. Um, but he he is the one that did the trials with using um, quinolones like like Cipro for travelers' diarrhea. Um, and determined that they were very effective uh, treatments for traveler's diarrhea. So uh, food and beverage precautions are extremely, extremely important. So you only want to drink bottled water or water that's been boiled uh, for just two or three minutes is another option. Um, And you want to make sure any dairy you consumed has been pasteurized. Some uh, non-antimicrobial um, uh, methods to prevent traveler's diarrhea include probiotics. Have any of you ever tried that when you're traveling for prevention? Good. Had success? Yeah, I, I think they work well, too. And there are more, there's more and more coming out in the literature to, su- to suggest that they are. Now, um, it seems that different strains seem to work a little better than others. I included this, this reference here, which is actually a meta-analysis, which looks at a lot of different studies. But it, it lists the, um, the strains of probiotics that seem to be um, beneficial there. Um, so I think it, it really does, does help. And you can just start taking it a couple of days before you go and just take it every day while you're there um, and for a few days after returning. Now, Pepto-Bismol is also uh, another common um, way to try to prevent traveler's diarrhea. A lot of folks like to use this, also known as bismuth salicylate. Has any of you tried that? Good. Okay. So the recommended dose is two tablets um, four times a day. Uh, And if you are, however, taking doxycycline for your malaria prophylaxis, you don't want to do the Pepto-Bismol. Because it, it, there is a drug interaction, and it causes your, level, your blood levels of doxycycline to, to, to decrease. And so you might not be well protected against malaria in that situation. The side effects with Pepto-Bismol. So you can get a black tongue. Um, it can also turn your stools black. So to avoid the black tongue, they say that, you know, you brush your teeth really well, your tongue, after you, um, after you use the medication. Um, there's also a potential for salicylate overdose, so you don't want to take more than the recommended um, amount there, and you don't certainly don't want to combine it with any, um, you know, aspirin to any other salicylate um, uh, medications. And if you're on Coumadin or if you're taking things like Motrin, ibuprofen, um, you you would not want to take Pepto-Bismol in that situation because. Uh, each of these medications would cause your um, blood to to not clot as well, and so that could uh, certainly increase your risk for bleeding. So you don't want to do that. Um, Antimicrobials, we don't recommend these routinely to prevent traveler's diarrhea, okay? Um, Only in very special circumstances where you have maybe uh, patients that uh, may have a compromised immune system for some reason or if it's a, a very, you know, short trip where uh, the traveler can't uh, afford to, to be ill. Maybe they're doing uh, some, some speaking engagements or leading a meeting or something like that where um, they can't afford to be ill. So if you get traveler's diarrhea, how do you treat it? Well, first off, you want to certainly make sure you stay well hydrated. So some folks will take with them some um, powdered form of Gatorade that they can mix up with some, some bottled water 
to make sure they get in some, uh, some electrolytes and, and uh, glucose. Um, we do recommend self-treatment. And uh, in Travel Clinic, I give folks a prescription for an antibiotic uh, to take should they become ill. Now, the options, it, it used to be that we use quinolones in most everybody unless there was an allergy. So quinolones include things like Cipro, um, Fluxin, Leviquin, those sorts of medications. Um, the the uh, an, an original recommended dose for Cipro was 500 milligrams twice a day. You can also do a 750 milligram tablet once a day. Most folks just need it for one or two days. Um, you um, can take it up to, to three days as needed. Yes. In the cases of Cipro and Levitoid, yeah. there are some studies that have come out that have caused uh, ligament damage. Yes. Uh, is there an alternate to those? Yes. So the other one that I prescribe frequently is azithromycin. Um, and that's, that's also yeah, Z-Max, Z, Z, Z some people call it, or Z-Pack. Um, although the dosing is a little bit different. Now, there's some, been some studies lately that have showed that a 1,000 milligram dose as a gram of azithromycin is effective, but some people don't tolerate that well and may actually vomit it. So the initial uh, recommended dose was 500 milligrams once a day up to three days. Now, there, there's some places where you don't want to do um, the quinolones because there's so much resistance to, particularly to pathogens like Campylobacter, and that is in parts of Asia. So in Thailand, and I think in, in India now, they actually recommend that you use azithromycin and not Cipro. Cipro is still very effective down in Latin America and in um, Africa. So um, Rifaximin, um, that is a newer medication. It is more expensive. Uh, the, the recommended dose is 200 milligrams three times a day, uh, up to, to three days, and it is approved for folks who are, at, you know, over 12 years. Now, um, rifaximin is a little unique. It is not absorbed, so it stays in your um, digestive tract and uh, is very effective against the enterotoxigenic E. coli, which is one, you know, one of our most common causes of traveler's diarrhea. Um, the problem is we don't know how well effective it is against Salmonella and Shigella. So these, those pathogens tend to be in, invasive, have the potential to be invasive, and the medication does, does not cross the mucosal barrier. So um, if you're having bloody diarrhea, rifaximin might not be your best option. You probably want to go with either the Cipro or Zithromycin. Um, also, rifaximin has been shown to not be effective against Campylobacter. Now, that's not as common of a cause of traveler's diarrhea, but seems to be a little more common um, in Asia. The nice thing about rifaximin is because it's not absorbed, you don't, most people don't have any side effects from it. So there is a, certainly a positive in that regard. Any questions about medications? Okay. Other uh, treatments for traveler's diarrhea, we recommend anti-motility agents. Um, so these are uh, the most common ones are synthetic opiates, such as lapiramide and lamotil. Now, lamotil, uh, which is a prescription, also has, uh, contains atropine, which can really dry your mouth and blur, cause blurry vision. So most folks use lapiramide, which is available to you over the counter. Um, a trade name is called Imodium. 
And, and what we recommend is that you take this along with the antibiotic and together um, these medications provide relief to most patients with traveler's diarrhea within 12 hours or so. It's pretty quick. Um, the older the opiates like Paragoric, um, they're, they're certainly effective, but they have a lot of side effects, so you want to avoid those. And again, um, bismuth salicylate, Pepto-Bismol, also can be used for, for treating traveler's diarrhea as an adjunct to your, um, your, your antibiotic therapy. Yeah. Anything besides Pepto-Bismol? Well, the, the antibiotic it, itself um, is very effective. And um, the, that, in combination with um, an anti-motility agent, usually works very well. So, I, yeah, I think I, I would avoid the Pepto-Bismol. So any, any amount, any dose seems to affect you that way. Wow. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I think I would avoid that. Um, so, yes. You know, I don't have that off the top of my head. It comes over the counter, and it tells you on the, the package, actually. It has adult dosing. If you want to know, it's two milligrams, two days, four milligrams, four times a day, actually two tablets after the first blue stool. Did you hear that? Okay. Do you recommend taking it after the first blue stool or, or wait until you see that it's going to for the the recommendation for when to take the antibiotic or the lamoda uh, or the loperamide. So um, yeah, I mean most folks wait till they've had the second one because the first one, it you know, the, there's a lot of things about travel that can cause your your bowels to be a little unsettled, and uh, so most folks wait until the second one unless they're just really miserable with cramping and that sort of thing. Yes. Um, generally, three to four days is enough. Okay, I mentioned persistent diarrhea a little bit earlier. Uh, and if, if you have persistent diarrhea, particularly if you have um, uh, fatty uh, stools that tend to float in the uh, toilet and have a particularly foul smell, Giardia will certainly be on the top of your your list. There is a, a very easy way to diagnose it in, in the um, U.S. with a rapid antigen test that's usually available um, within 24 hours. The results are usually available quickly. So Giardia, there are a few options for treating it. Um, tinidazole is what I use to treat folks most often because it's nice. It's a one-dose treatment. It's two grams, but it's one dose. It's very simple to do, and most people tolerate it okay. Um, Nidazoxanide is a, another option, and that's a three-day treatment. And then what we used to use before we had these newer medications with, was, is metronidazole or flagyl. And the, the problem with that is it does have more side effects, and you have to take it for five to seven days, so it's a, a longer treatment course, and uh, it gives you know, your foods a metallic taste. It's, it's not nearly as pleasant as the other ones to take. Uh, other parasitic causes of diarrhea in travelers are much less common, but if you're having some bloody diarrhea you, and, that doesn't seem to respond to an antibiotic, you certainly would want to think about uh, entamoeba. 
Um, cyclospore, cryptosporidium, those are less common causes, but they can be, be diagnosed through stool studies. But you have to specifically um, ask the lab to look for some of these pathogens. They're not routinely done. So post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome. So th this has been in the literature a lot lately. Um, and this occurs in folks who um, uh, have had a, a course of traveler's diarrhea. It seems that the longer your, uh, your episode of traveler's diarrhea, the longer the duration, the more likely you are to develop um, IBS after travel. Um, and th so in folks that they've studied, um, there, there was no um, bowel um, abnormality before they traveled. They did not have any signs or symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. But after the travel, after having an episode of traveler's diarrhea, they, they develop it. And um, what usually happens is they have persistent symptoms, usually with, you know, some abdominal pain and uh, intermittent diarrhea that just won't go away. And um, in, in the folks they study, they, of course, looked for a variety of parasitic causes, could not identify any, and um, determined that this is what they have. They also um, scoped these individuals and did some pathology and saw evidence of chronic inflammation, which is what you see in folks who have um, irritable bowel syndrome who have not traveled. So it's a very similar pathology. And there's not a lot known on the prognosis, how long is this going to last, but for some it, um, that they've studied out for a while, it seems to persist for years. So that's one of the reasons why we really like to try to prevent traveler's diarrhea if we can. And so trying the probiotics or the, the Pepto-Bismol are good, good options. So let's think about our vaccinations here for a little bit. Uh, first, I want to talk about the routine ones. So the adults I see that come through our travel clinic, um, uh, you know, will ask if they've had uh, – their tetanus or if they know when their last tetanus shot was, and a lot of them have no idea. So I end up uh, giving a lot of tetanus boosters to folks who come through travel clinic. And the Tdap preparation is most preferred, so that's tetanus, diphtheria, and acellular pertussis. So several, several years ago, um, a, uh, an adult dose of pertussis was added to our tetanus, routine tetanus vaccines, for adults, uh, which is wonderful, so that, you know, protection against pertussis, because we were all immunized against this as, as children, but our immunity wanes as we get older, so this is uh, nice that we can get boosted for this, because you certainly are going to, you know, come into contact with that, both locally, uh, there's a risk for that, and certainly through travel. Yes? Uh, how often should you get a tetanus? Every 10 years. Yeah. Good question. Okay, measles. Now, this can be a little tricky to sort out sometimes, too. So for those born before 1957, um, when, you know, when uh, having measles infection was quite common, those folks don't, don't need vaccines. So they, either they had the, um, the illness, had clinical evidence of the illness, or they had developed subclinical immunity in, in some form or fashion. So the tricky part comes in uh, for folks who were born in the 60s and early 70s. At that time, we were only giving one measles vaccination to folks. So the problem with that is about 1% to 5% of folks do not convert uh, 
and become um, immune to measles after one vaccine. So it was determined, you know, years later, I think in the 80s, that we needed that the booster dose, okay? So it, it was added into the vaccination schedule for children. So you need to have um, documentation of having had two measles vaccines, and if not, you, you know, you may need a booster prior to, um, to travel. Um, polio boosters, again, you know, we, we got our polio vaccinations as, as children. Um, if you're traveling as an adult to uh, certain parts of Africa and Asia, particularly India and Pakistan, where uh, there's still uh, new cases of polio every year, then you need to get um, boosted for uh, polio as well. You just need one booster as an adult for that one. No, this is for any 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 adult that has not had uh, uh, an, a booster after they were 21 years of age for polio would need that booster. But only if you're going to those those places. So certain countries in in Africa, and then it's primarily Pakistan and India and Asia. Okay, some travel-specific sp- vaccinations. Hepatitis A uh, is a very common infection in less developed um, areas. This uh, infection is acquired through uh, the ingestion of contaminated food and water. Uh, the hepatitis A vaccine is an excellent vaccine. It has about uh, 99% efficacy. Most people have no side effects from it at all. Um, you get your first dose. You, preferably, you want to get it two weeks before you travel. Although I have given uh, this vaccine to folks as they were on the way out the door uh, for their trip, who kind of waited to the last minute. Um, but the, and the reason being is, is because it's still going to be pretty efficacious for them. Um, if you're exposed to hepatitis A, you, you don't manifest symptoms until two to six weeks after exposure. So the vaccine takes about two weeks to work. So it's okay if you get it going out the door. It's not preferable. Um, you want to get a booster in six to 12 months after that initial vaccine. Um, sometimes folks forget that. Now, you know, they say that's fine. You can booster, you know, even, you know, a few years later. That's okay. But that's to give you lifelong immunity. So the, yes. You could do it that way, although um, that initial uh, vaccine, if you, you know, if you get it two weeks before you travel, is sufficient for that trip. Just to, just to achieve lifelong immunity, you want to get that booster. So is there any harm in getting one six months ahead of time, just that one, or do you need to wait closer to the time? Does it, does it matter? Oh, no, it, it shouldn't matter. No, that should be fine. Um, typhoid vaccines, there are a couple of options. So there's a live attenuated vaccine that consists of four capsules at a pretty big size uh, that you take um, every other day. It takes about a week to get that in, and you want to have completed uh, the vaccine course at least a week before travel. So this is a live vaccine, so if uh, you have any uh, immunosuppression, if you've been on steroids, if you're on any other medication that can alter your immune system, you want to stay away from this vaccine. Um, it also, in terms of side effects, um, 
can have some gastrointestinal side effects because it is passing through your gastrointestinal tract, can cause some abdominal pain, and some folks even have some nausea and vomiting with it. Um, the nice thing about this oral vaccine is that it gives you five years of protection. So if you're going to be doing a lot of trips, this would probably be the better um, option. Um, the intramuscular form of the vaccine um, works just as well as the oral. Uh, it's uh, a booster. I mean, you have to booster it every two years. So you do have to booster it more frequently. The side effects... Um, about one in a hundred folks will have fever with it, and you can get a little achiness with it, but it um, it seems to work uh, about as well as the other. So typhoid is a, a very important uh, problem in um, South Asia, in particular. So for anybody traveling there, you certainly want to get that, and and also for travelers to many parts of um, Africa and even um, Latin America, typhoid is very uh, significant. So yellow fever, this is a, a virus that is transmitted by mosquitoes. Um, it has a high case fatality rate if someone becomes ill with this uh, infection. Since 2000, there have been a lot of uh, outbreaks in, in uh, Western Africa. There have also been some uh, significant increase in disease activity in Brazil, particularly in southern Brazil. So areas that were uh, previously considered free of yellow fever in southern Brazil have now turned, you know, become uh, positive on the on the maps. We have yellow fever maps that we consult when we have folks come in to, to for a travel visit, and it it shows you on a map where the active areas for yellow fever are. But in Brazil, that seems to be spreading. So how do we protect ourselves? There's, there's a vaccine. There's only one available at this point. It is a live attenuated vaccine, so you cannot give this to anyone who ha has immunosuppression of any sort, okay? And that includes being on steroids for any reason. It is relatively safe and effective, but I will caution you, there have been some serious side effects from this vaccine, including death. Now, the side effects most likely occur at the extremes of ages. So this is in little babies and in um, folks over 65 years of age. The neurologic complications are, are more likely to uh, occur in very, very young children. The viscerotropic uh, side effect, that, that almost mimics yellow fever itself, um, occurs, tends to occur more commonly in the elderly. Uh, and it has a high case fatality rate, um, and it seems to be higher in women as well. But this is in first-time vaccinees only. So uh, you, you get your you know, initial yellow fever vaccine. It is boosted every 10 years thereafter. The, the serious side effects have never occurred in uh, second or third doses of the vaccine. So absolute contraindications are uh, for little babies, um, even folks that have had a history of thymus disease should avoid this vaccine, and that uh, contraindication was just added within the last few years. Um, we talked about immunosuppression. Pregnancy is a con contraindication because this is a live vaccine, and then folks with egg allergy too. Any questions about that? Yes. Uh, not not for the, the yellow fever. Now, you do have to be careful with the typhoid vaccine. It's passing through your GI tract, which you want, you know, you use good hand washing should be, should be fine. A good question, though.
Yes. So if you don't think you'll be traveling to areas of um, yellow fever, you wouldn't bother to booster it until you know you're going back? Absolutely right. Uh, um, the question was, you know, when to booster the yellow fever. If you're traveling to an area where it's not needed, can you wait? And yes, it's absolutely fine to wait. India does not have uh, yellow fever. Yellow fever is present in um, tropical areas in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, and in uh, South America. Now, the only time you might need a yellow fever um, vaccine if you're going to India is if you pass through a country that has yellow fever prior to uh, flying to India. So if you were to go through Kenya... Uh, to get to India, uh, India, for example, and you did not have proof of having had a yellow fever vaccine, they will hold you in quarantine for five days um, uh, to make sure that you do not have yellow fever before they allow you to come into the country. Yeah, in the Congo, when we went through from uh, Burundi, uh -huh. they wanted our yellow fever card with a separate from your immunization card to see it. Wow. Uh, yeah. They're pretty strict about that. Okay, Neisseria meningitidis. Um, it causes epidemic and endemic disease all over the world. Um, there is this meningitis belt in, um, in Africa and uh, have, uh, where, where it is located here. It, it runs from Senegal in the west all the way over through Ethiopia um, in the east. Now, in 2009, that was a very active year for um, Neisseria. There were 78,000 cases uh, and over 400 deaths reported. So there were probably a lot more than that, but these are just the reported ones. So if you're going over to um, Africa, anywhere near that meningitis uh, belt, they certainly recommended that you get uh, the meningococcal vaccine. So several years ago, this conjugate vaccine was put on the market. Um, it is a quadrivalent vaccine. The serotypes are, are listed there. It does not include the B serotype, which um, is folks have tried to make, uh, companies have tried to create a vaccine against the B subtype, but um, it is not immunogenic. They can't get it to work, So, um, it, which is not so important when you're traveling. It, the, B, the, the meningitis caused by the B type is important in the U.S., but not in Africa. The most um, common type in Africa actually is the A subgroup. Um, there's some C, but predominantly A. Um, you want to get this vaccine, um, you know, at least a few weeks prior to travel. Uh, it's approved for uh, young children and, uh, and those up to age 55. There, and the reason it's not approved for folks over 55 is it hasn't been studied in that age group yet. Um, it doesn't mean it's not safe or effective. It just hasn't been studied well. Um, a booster dose is recommended three to five years after the first. The older vaccine is a polysaccharide vaccine. has the same serogroups. Um, it, too, is available for, uh, for folks who um, are over 55, and it, too, needs to be boosted um, in three- to five-year increments. Oh, certainly. Absolutely. Just for a second. Sure. So, yeah, it's a polysaccharide va vaccine, and that's the one that's been around for many, many years. Sure. So rabies, is um, the vaccine is generally not um, recommended for short-term travelers. There are some uh, exceptions. So if you're going to be in a very remote area, far from um, 
any hospital or clinic that may contain the rabies vaccine, um, you may want to consider it. If you're going to have a lot of outdoor exposure where you would be at risk for um, some exposure or a bite or a scratch or something from an animal, certainly you want to consider it. Um, and then folks who are going over for long-term work, um, uh, it is recommended. Now, it's an inactivated vaccine. Um, it's relatively safe. Um, can get a little fever and achiness from it. Um, there are two options that, uh, that most uh, clinics have available. And the uh, drawback about this one is it is very expensive, and it's three, three doses. The nice thing about it is that if you have this primary series um, of vaccines prior to travel and you get a bite or a scratch that, you know, has a potential for rabies uh, uh, transmission, then you're, you're going to need the rabies immune globulin. And um, if, if you have not had the, the vaccines prior to travel. The, and this is a biological that's very, it can be hard to find in developing countries. And it can be very hard to find in a pure form that, um, that won't give you some horrible side effects. So um, if, you, if you're going to be in a remote area, you probably want to consider the rabies vaccine. Um, also, having the vaccine prior to travel decreases the number of doses you're going to need if you have an exposure. Um, so if, in, in this country included, if you have um, a, a bite that could be a potential rabies exposure, you're going to have to get, you know, the four vaccines. It used to be five. It was reduced to four just a couple of years ago. Um, if you've had the uh, vaccine series prior to travel or prior to an exposure, you only have to have two afterwards. So you, is this lifelong? Is this lifelong? So what folks do, so folks like veterinarians that um, want to constantly keep their, their rabies uh, immunity up, they get titers checked every couple of years, and they get boosted accordingly. Yeah. yeah most, you can check titers, and if your titer is still good, then you don't need to get boosted. Right. Right. If you have mm -hmm. That's correct. If you're exposed after previous vaccination, you get two doses. You get two doses, and you don't need the rabies immune globulin. Because generally, if you have a, a bite, um, you haven't had the, the vaccine series prior to exposure, then you get a dose of the immune globulin injected into the bite, actually. Um, but if you've had the, the vaccine series prior, you don't need to have that rabies immune globulin. It, makes it, it simplifies it. You have some rabies out in te Texas, yes, yes. In South Carolina, we have rabies in uh, raccoons is quite common. Um, so, and and it is that's carried over into foxes now as well. And uh, they're pretty aggressive, and they go after dogs and whatnot too. Um, so, be careful. No, it's not. It, I mean, it's almost a hundred percent mortality if you develop rabies. Yeah, I mean, occasionally you hear of a survivor, but it's, it's rare, extremely rare. So Japanese encephalitis also is uh, not too often needed for folks who are going for short-term travel. Again, unless you're going to have a lot of, um, of outdoor um, exposure. Um, it, it, this is uh, uh, present not just in Japan. This is throughout countries in Asia. There's Japanese encephalitis. 
So there's a vaccine that came to market uh, and became available in the U.S. a couple of years ago. It works really well. It has fewer side effects than the previous vaccine. And, uh, it, you know, most travel clinics have this available. So it requires two doses. So you need to plan ahead. You want to get both doses in prior to travel, and they need to be given a month apart, 28 days apart. So there are various parts of, of Asia where you need it. India, um, uh, certain parts of China. There, there are lots not of – not – well, <laughs> the ethical – You haven't ever gotten it. You know, I don't have too, too many folks coming through my clinic that are going to Japan. It's mostly folks that are going to developing areas. Um, so that hasn't come up. I, that would be very unusual unless you're maybe going out into a very remote area where mosquitoes are a big problem. So cholera vaccine is, um, is not uh, generally recommended. If folks are going over to do um, a refugee work, um, aid work after a big disaster, in some cases it may be recommended. The problem is it's not available in the U.S. It is available in Europe, and I think Canada has it as well. Uh, but you have to make other arrangements. You know, if, I guess if you're traveling like to Africa, for instance, passing through Europe, you make, can make arrangements to get it there. But it's not available in the U.S., why? I don't know. I, the, um, but it hasn't been for years. I, yeah. So I was thinking, I've had cholera, but it's been a long time. A long time. Yeah. 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 And influenza vaccine, every traveler should have a flu vaccine prior to travel. And remember, flu in the tropics is, is not seasonal. It occurs year-round. So you want to, you know, if you're, you need to plan ahead, if you're going to be, you know, traveling in the, late winter or spring of the following year, you want to make sure you get your flu shot um, that preceding fall or winter. So mosquitoes, um, you, you want to limit bites as much as possible because mosquitoes can give you a lot of things, not just malaria. They can give you dengue fever, yellow fever, um, Japanese encephalitis. There are a lot of infections that can come from mosquitoes. So we um, advise folks to wear um, Long sleeves, long pants. Um, I know it's hot in a lot of these climates where you're going, but if you can get some lightweight clothing and light colored, colored clothing, that is preferable. Um, you can treat your clothing with permethrin, which is available in uh, the backpacker sorts of places. Um, and it, you know, it tells you on the can or the bottle how to, to do it, but it's quite simple. And that lasts for several weeks, the permethrin does, and uh, even if you wash your clothes a few times. So it is, uh, it's a great thing to do, and it keeps away mosquitoes and ticks. Um, DEET, you want to put on exposed skin. The concentration we recommend is 25 to 35%. Um, and you can find that most anywhere, um, Walmart, drugstores, um, backpacker places. Just look for that concentration because it comes in a variety of concentrations from about 5% up to 99%. Um, but 25 to 35 is preferable. Another option is picaridin. But you need to find it in a concentration of at least 20%. And when it first came out in the U.S., that was hard to do. It came, you could you find it in 7 and 10%, but that was about it. Yes? If you use 25, 35%, That's a great question. So it's four to six hours, okay? So if you, there fortunately now are some um, longer-acting deep preparations that contain 25 to 35% concentration. One brand name is called Ultrathon. It comes in a lotion. Um, and it lasts for 12 hours. Where would you find the permethrin? 
Permethrin, um, I have found at backpacker places. I'm not sure if places like Walmart and drugstores have it, um, but I know a lot of the backpacker places, you can order it online from travel stores as well. Yes, they have clothes that uh, have already been treated with it that will uh, apparently last through 100 washes. Now, it tends to be a little bit more expensive to do it that way. So chemoprophylaxis, um, it depends on where you're going as to what the recommendation might be. So there are various websites that can help you out with that. Um, travel clinics oftentimes have a specific software program that's very detailed, country-specific uh, information that's updated um, regularly. It's, it's a web-based uh, plan. We use Travax as the software program we use for that. Now, chloroquine um, is... Uh, doesn't work in, in the majority of places where malaria is a problem. There are still countries in Central America where chloroquine is effective, also in parts of China. Um, this medicine is safe, um, and even for long-term use. Uh, you don't want to use it in folks who are G6PD deficient um, or in cases of uh, epilepsy. But in most folks, it's tolerated very well. Very few folks have side effects with this. The nice thing about it is it's weekly dosed. Um, you want to start it at least a week before you go, but you only have to do it once a week. And folks like that. That includes Guatemala. That includes Guatemala. Uh, Mefloquine, um, I have the adult, uh, adult dose there for you. It's uh, also fairly safe and effective. Now, folks, some folks do have side effects. Have any of you taken this medication before? Okay. I see some, some folks shaking their heads. Yes, so the, the side effects um, can be fairly mild and just include some gastrointestinal discomfort. But some folks do have some very unpleasant neuropsychiatric effects. And this tends to be um, much more common in folks that have a history of uh, psychiatric illness of some sort. Um, it otherwise seems to be very well tolerated in um, otherwise healthy individuals. Now, it can cause very vivid dreams. Some of you may have experienced that before. And uh, sometimes dreams that are so vivid that it's hard to, to separate from uh, reality. So that can be a little unnerving. So some folks, when they're traveling to a, a new place, um, and are particularly a remote place, don't want to have to deal with that, that sort of side effect. So what are our options? Well, we have atovaquone proguanol, also known as malarone is the trade name. Um, it's been around uh, and for many, many years and, and became available in the, the U.S. over a decade ago. Um, and it is uh, very well tolerated. Most people have no side effects from this, uh, particularly if they take it with food. You don't want to take this on an empty stomach or you will get some nausea and can have some vomiting even with it. Um, but it is, is, like I said, very well tolerated. It's drawback, well, there are two. One, you have to take it every day. Um, and you start taking it a day or two before you leave on your trip. You take it every day while you're there and then for a week after returning. Um, and it is expensive. So that's another drawback. But for a short-term trip, um, you know, it seems to, be, seems to be affordable. If you're going for longer term, it's not as, not as practical. Yes? Hopefully the prices will be dropping. It used to be $5 a day. Um, so if it's becoming available generically, that should drop the price. Thank you. Are you going to address the malaria vaccine? 
Well, the malaria vaccine, there's still not one available. Um, there have been um, some that have been in clinical trials, um, particularly since um, the Gates Foundation has become very um, interested in vaccines. There's been a lot more money put in, in uh, vaccine development. But there's still not one that's, I don't think, close to, to market, unfortunately. Now, doxycycline is another good option. Um, it is one that's daily dosed. You've got to take it every day. You start taking it um, one to two days before you travel. Uh, the dose is 100 milligrams a day. Um, again, it can have some gastrointestinal side effects, including esophagitis that can be extremely painful. So you want to take this medication very early in the day with a big glass of water. Okay, You don't want to take this medicine and lie down and go to bed. It will cause a lot of... Uh, of reflux. Um, the other unpleasant side effect is that it can cause photosensitivity in individuals. And you're going to, if you're going to a tropical area where the sun's pretty intense, um, this is certainly not desirable. You have to be extra, extra cautious in the sun. Um, in uh, women, it can cause yeast infections as well when it's taken for prolonged periods. Now, after you return from your trip, you do need to take this one for four weeks. Um, so uh, the one good thing about this one is it is, it is very, very cheap. Um, so a lot of folks opt for this one because it is uh, very affordable. The other nice thing about it is it gives you a little bit of protection from traveler's diarrhea as well when you're taking this daily. It is also the medication, doxycycline is one of the treatments for, for cholera. So you get, you, know, you get some protection from other things besides malaria when you're taking this. Yes. Right. Okay. So the question is, um, how effective is doxycycline in different parts of the world? So actually, it's very effective. Um, and in fact, in places uh, in Asia now, particularly in Thailand along the border, so the Thai-Burma uh, border and the Thai-Laos um, border, there's a lot of resistance to um, mefloquine even. So the only two recommendations for that area are atovaquone, proguanol, and doxycycline. So it, doxycycline is still very effective in, in a lot of areas in the world. Any other questions? All right. And then I just included some things that you might want to take along in a, um, a tra uh, travel kit for uh, in the event that there's a minor emergency. You know, you want to have your your Tylenol and ibuprofen, of course. But in addition to that, you know, include some antihistamines, some um, antibacterial and antifungal um, skin creams, and as well as uh, you know, plenty of bandages and and uh, ways to keep wounds clean. I mean, if you get any kind of um, cut or abrasion, you want to jump on that quickly and make sure you keep it very, very clean to avoid any sorts of uh, infection. I included some uh, web-based resources for you that can contain uh, travel information. Um, also, there's a listing of travel clinics um, on the ASTMH website, so you can find one that's closest to your area. 
I also advise people to check out the State Department website and look at the travel section. It has a lot of good information, travel warnings, folks uh, where folks from the U.S. should uh, avoid. And it's certainly it goes country-specific, but it even gets down into certain areas within a country that would be very dangerous for U.S. Uh, citizens to travel. So it's, it's important to consult that website as well. I'll leave that there. I think the last slide just contains my contact information, but I'll leave it here in case uh, you want to get those websites down. Any questions about anything? I yes. noticed you did not go over hepatitis B. I didn't, and um, I, I should have included that because, you, you know, I, um, a lot of times when I give this talk, I have more of a pediatric focus, and, all, you know, pediatrics get it as part of their routine. P, uh, children do. So for folks who have not been immunized against hepatitis B who are, you know, traveling as an, an adult, it is important if you're going to be doing any sort of medical work. You need to have a hepatitis B vaccine. Now, health care workers in this country are, have all been immunized against hepatitis B. To work in a hospital or clinic, um, it's often mandatory to have that vaccine. If you have not had it and you're traveling and you in, anticipate some very close contact with uh, local people, you have to have the exchange of body fluids to transmit hepatitis B. But that can be important for folks who maybe are going over to work in an orphanage where you might be taking care of children, a child has a nosebleed, child has a, a wound that might uh, be oozing some uh, discharge or blood, then you, are, you could be at risk. So if you're going to do something like that, um, I, I would recommend getting the hepatitis B vaccine series. It is a three-shot series. Boosters for Hep B are not uh, routinely um, recommended, and even for folks who are in the you know the healthcare field, we don't get um, boosted. Now we do um, oftentimes after our initial series, we'll check to make sure we have mounted an immune response because some folks are non-responders to the hepatitis B vaccine and have to have the series repeated. But in general, um, at this time, boosters are not recommended. Yes? Back in the 90s, uh -huh. I, we had to have them, but they only gave us one. It's a single shot. Back in the 90s. Huh. Early, I don't know, 94, maybe. That is a bit unusual. So, hep, so now, yeah, so hep B... Yeah, I would start over. <laughs> I think I would start over. Now, if you haven't had Hep A, there is a, an option where you can get the combined Hep A, Hep B vaccine. It's called Twinrix, and um, it, it's three doses, but you you know it saves you uh, a couple of shots because you get it in a combined form. It is as effective. Yes, it is. Good question, but yeah, it, it seems to work very well. I had a chider done because it's been so many years yeah. since I had it done, and they told me I would never, ever need a booster. Excellent. And I think that's, that's the case with most folks. Yeah. If you, have, if you have any concerns about your hepatitis B, you can, uh, you know, be still being effective, get a titer. All right. Yeah, sorry. There you go. And I have a card, too, for any of those. Oh. If you want to leave this up. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yes. Um, you mentioned going to a travel doctor. How right. do you find travel doctors? Yeah, so the, um, yeah, the ASTMH website has a list of travel clinics 
Um, the, there's also an um, organization called the International Society of Travel Medicine. They have a list of travel clinics as well. I'm glad you brought that up. Local health departments. So in some areas, because of budget, cut, you know, cutbacks in budget, a lot of health departments have stopped doing travel vaccines. So um, that is no longer an option in my state, uh, or at least down in the, in the Charleston area where I live. But in some places, the health department may be an option, but, um, but not available everywhere anymore, unfortunately. Can I get your email? Sure. Anything else? Those are very good questions. Thank you.